I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways, which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to shirt from Mr Putin. I am a fighter and not a fighter. I don't think I know. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny, with another Democracy Sausage, which, as you know, comes from the Australian National University each week. Now, visiting fellows come and go from the university, and sometimes we're lucky enough to snag one of them for Democracy Sausage. I hope you got the sausage pun there. Derek S. Hutchison is a professor of political science at Malmo University in Sweden, although he lives over the bridge, the famous bridge, in Denmark, and he lived for a time in Ireland... He was born in Scotland, even lived for a time in Russia, and uh, he's now with us here, which is which makes him a local, at least for the few moments that you're still in this country. Welcome, Derek, to Democracy Sausage. Thank you, and I've enjoyed my time as a local. So what we want to talk to you about today, because you are a Russian specialist, uh, a specialist in Russian politics, that's the area of kind of academic interest that you have, and it's a source of great interest to the rest of the world at the moment, of course, because of the horrendous war in Ukraine and uh, and and the instability that that has caused. Not so many months ago, a bit over two months ago, Yevgeny Prigozhin, a billionaire autocrat, a mercenary leader of the uh, the Wagner Group or Wagner Group, however it's pronounced, led a kind of an abortive coup. Uh, seemed that way anyway he was sort of embarked on a on an armed march towards moscow and then and then was talked out of it and everyone wondered what was going to happen surely vladimir putin wasn't going to tolerate this and at first though it seemed that he was tolerating it he i think he had a meeting with him um eventually there was the uh the the sort of compromise negotiated with um belarus the leader there and it seemed quite out of character and quite odd but at the same time, one wondered how long this would last. Was Prigozhin long for this world? Well, we now know that he wasn't, or at least so we understand. Uh, the plane that he was in blew up and everyone on it died, including some Wagner, pe- Wagner people who were with him, but also at least one other sort of completely innocent civilian, uh, uh, an air steward who was on the plane. Um there's still some uncertainty. I think we probably should say that. There's still some uncertainty that he died in that explosion. There's a lot of uncertainty about how the explosion came about. Was it done with a missile? Was it done with a bomb? Who was behind it? And yet it all seems to point pretty obviously in one direction. So no one's all that surprised that he's no longer with us, nor are they surprised that uh, Vladimir Putin remains in power. So I guess I wanted to start this conversation with you by asking you what is Putin's secret? I mean, he has been there a long time. 
as a as a journalist, I've travelled with prime ministers and been at a number of uh, um, you know uh, leaders' meetings around the world where Putin has been uh, representing Russia. I can think of one dating back to two thousand and six. That's a long time ago, and he's still there. I mean, he's you know come and gone from the actual presidency, but um, he's still there. What's his secret? Indeed, um, and you're, you're right. I, I was in Russia, in fact, the day he became acting president at the end of 1999 when, when President Yeltsin resigned early. Um, so wow. we're now 23 and a half years on from yeah. more than 23 and a half years on from that day. Uh, and Vladimir Putin has been a constant feature of Russian politics uh, ever since. Uh, Not just a strong man, but a long man. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, that's uh, one way of putting it. Um, four years between 2008 and 2012, he, he temporarily stood aside but became a very powerful prime minister to President Medvedev, who, who yes. was one of his protégés and, and clearly they had a very close working relationship. And to, they to still do. Medvedev seems almost as mad as, as Putin. Some of his rhetoric's even more bellicose. He's, he's for example, spoken even more directly, it seems to me, about using nuclear weapons and these kinds of things if Russia is pushed too far. Yeah, well, we can perhaps go back to Medvedev later because yeah, okay. his, his role has has changed a bit over over time as well. Right. But um, your, your question at the beginning was what what keeps him there and, mm. and why is he so popular? And I think it's one thing to state straight away um, is that there are obviously Russian sociological organisations who have monitored month by month how popular he is. They've asked a question in, in opinion polls every month for the last 24 years. Do you approve or disapprove of the actions of Vladimir Putin as president or prime minister for the, the four years in between? And his ratings never drop below 60%. Now, there's not a politician in the West who, whose, whose ratings are even up at 60% most of the time. So yeah. this is a pretty you know, high number, obviously. The second question then is, is you know, does he have legitimacy as president? And clearly, there, there's three different ways you can talk about legitimacy. You can talk about legitimacy, as Max Weber did, from, from the idea of a legal rational idea, that you have a, a political system, you have a, a, a law, somebody obtains their position through you know, legitimate means, in this case, having an election, be, being elected and so on. So every time there's been an election, Putin has, has won it or his, his preferred nominee in the case of Medvedev has won it. We can come back again later maybe to, to, to the, the methods by which that's, that's happened. But clearly that gives the, at least formally, the electoral legitimacy. But but the other two types of legitimacy that, that often are talked about are, are charismatic legitimacy and output legitimacy. Um, charismatic legitimacy where somebody's Personal power, in a sense, is, is what, what gives them their legitimacy. Output legitimacy being that they, they basically deliver the goods. And we've done a lot of research over the years with myself and, and with colleagues as to, to what it is that supports this, this very high rating for Putin. Um, and what we've essentially found is that it maps very clearly onto three phenomena. And one of them is that, that Putin is seen, or at least until recently has been seen, as, as the guarantor of stability for Russia. So you have to remember that, that back in... 1999, when Putin took over, the country had had 10 or more years of, of chaos. The, the yeah. Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, but it was preceded by two or three years of, of everything falling apart at the seams. There was then a 10-year period during which the economy effectively collapsed. Uh, President Yeltsin became increasingly erratic and towards the end of his time absent, so he was often working in documents, as the, the euphemism said. <laughs> it was meant they disappeared for weeks at a time and, uh, and wasn't actively running the country most of the time. There was obviously endemic corruption. Um, in 1998, there was a, a huge crash of the Russian rubles. A lot of people lost their savings. In many cases in 1999, I think roughly a third of the population, when we asked in opinion polls, hadn't been paid for more than a month. Um, so, so 
Putin came in to that that chaos, uh, and it, it maps a bit into the the sort of Russian yeah. idea of of a time of troubles followed by someone who, who rescues them from those time of troubles. A strong figure, exactly. Yeah. Now, now Putin was also lucky in that the price of oil turned around about the time he became president, and, and there's only so far an economy can fall with, yeah. before it starts to rise. But but Putin uh, came in at exactly that moment. Uh, the economy did improve at least at the beginning. Uh, there were a lot of economic reforms undertaken that that, that momentum sort of died as, as time has gone on. But the, the, the stability, anyways, was the main thing. People compared Russia, at least until the last two or three years, with the 1990s. Uh, they looked at the 1990s, they remembered the chaos. Mm. They looked forward to, to the present day and they said, well, you know, life now is more stable than it was back then. You know, and as long as Putin's there, it, we, we'll keep that stability. The second thing then was the economy. So, so from 2000 up to about 2008 or nine, the economy actually grew very rapidly. And obviously it was starting from a, a very low base. Yeah. But there was 10 years of, of very, very high economic growth, much, much higher than than uh, most Western countries in relative terms year by year. Uh, and if you were in Russia in 1999 and then again came back in 2009, it was like two different eras. It wasn't, it wasn't just you know, a 10-year gap and it wasn't just that living standards had improved. Living standards had basically moved from the, the 1990s to the, the 2010s in, in if a, if we sort of take a Western picture. Mm. So, so there was a huge improvement for the majority of Russians. There might have been the odd one that they didn't, but, but the majority of ordinary Russians by 2009 were better off by a quite substantial margin than they had been in 1999. They saw the country as having become much more stable and predictable. People then started taking out mortgages, planning for the future and so on. But by the late 2000s, early 2010s, of course, there was the worldwide financial crash. Russia actually weathered that relatively well, but but the economy basically stagnated from that point on. Is that because of its resource base? Uh, well, yeah, well? I mean, a, lar a large part of Russia's exports, I know the, the weaknesses that come out of this too, but a large part of Russia's exports come from, from mineral resources, yeah. so oil and gas, mm. but, but not only that, also diamonds and, and various other natural resources. One of the things that, that the 10 years of economic growth allowed them to do was build up a huge reserve fund. So that also cushioned them. They, they, they had no external debt. They, they had um, you know, a reserve fund that they could yeah. dip into to, to, to take them over the, the bad times. So, so compared to, to some Western countries, at least in, in 2008, 2009, 2010, that the crisis wasn't that bad in Russia. But nonetheless, this, this very fast economic growth petered out from that point on. And, and you know, obviously problems of corruption and so on remained. So you've got economic growth, you've got stability, but by the early 2010s, shall we say, the, the, the economic growth is, is no longer quite the winner it once was. The stability still is a winner, but it's not maybe something that can last forever because there's there's background memories that start to fade. People get older. Yes. People uh, you know, who were around in the 1990s don't necessarily remember it as well uh, or aren't even around anymore. So, so the third aspect of this that, that maps very clearly onto Putin's support is, is Russia's role in the world. And again, if you remember the late 1980s, you said in the time of the Cold War, obviously the Soviet Union was the, the world's second superpower next to the mm. United States. Mm. Increasingly by the 1980s, it was the very much the world's second superpower, not 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 an equal. And in the 1990s, obviously with the economic crash, the, the, the perception of Russia's role in the world perhaps diminished. Well, exactly. Um, there was that sort of sense almost of humiliation, uh, you know, that the experiment having ended and ended badly. And in fact, the early arrival of Putin is it, it promises a kind of a modernization, not just in the economy and technology, but in 
in politics, doesn't it? I mean, in sort yeah, of well, a liberalisation. The thing, I mean, if it's, it's very interesting actually. I was I was tidying out my office in in, in Malmo uh, a few months ago, and I came across a, a newspaper clipping I'd, I'd taken uh, when I was living there back in back in nineteen ninety nine. It was a newspaper article published on the thirty first of December nineteen ninety nine, and I, I presume by that point Putin might have known he was taking over later that day, but nobody mm. else did. And this essentially was his manifesto for the coming century. Um, at the time, he was prime minister. And at the time, it was published as the Prime Minister's Musings on the Turn of the Century and so on. But when you look at, at you know, the text of that, that uh, now it's it's in um, the newspapers on the 31st of December 1999, if anyone wants to go back and look it up, all the themes of, of Putin's first few years as, as president are there um, about bringing economic growth, about cracking down on corruption, about making sure the oligarchs are not overpowerful, but also about um, bringing Russia back into the, the international community as a strong and powerful Actor, and that maps again into a sort of long-term uh, myth. And I, I use myth here in the in the, the sort of sense of political myth that, that you know, politicians often build their reputations or their 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 identity on certain myths. And in Russia, yeah. one of the long-term political myths is that there's a cycle, and that you have times of troubles, then someone strong comes along and sorts it out. Yeah. Another political myth is is that Russia um, has always been a great civilizational power, and and that's what Putin's been tapping into. This idea is called Derzhava in Russian. Um, the idea that, that Russia is destined to be a great power and that the 1990s were some sort of aberration from that and that, that you know, restoring Russia's role in the world is inevitable. Now, coming back to what you asked about earlier, this, this what is it supports Putin's support? We, we had these three things, which was stability, economy, and support for his foreign policy. Um, and Which you could call security, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. questions of security. Um, now, round about this time, of course, was, was when the, the um, annexation of Crimea took place. At that point, Putin's ratings went sky high. People saw him, and I'm not in any way, I should say, condoning or or, or uh, acknowledging here the, the, the annexation of Crimea, but to say as a, as a political fact that, yes, that they, yes, they tried to do I, it in 2014. That. Um, at that point, that was extremely popular amongst ordinary Russians. Um, the idea of, of sort of bringing in a, a Russian-speaking land, which they, they see they saw as having accidentally been lost through an administrative uh, change in, in the 1950s, that that led to what for many years was called the Crimea effect in Russian politics, whereby Putin's ratings, which had been still fairly high, but not, not quite as high as they had been in his early years, shot sky high again. Um, and a lot of what he's been doing for the last few years has, has been switching over from the questions of economy and stability, which, which are no longer the vote winners they, they once were, when the economy is not doing as well and, and you know, people don't remember the instability, and switching his focus over to, to foreign policy. Now, now coming to the, the present situation, obviously that's an entirely different league again from mm. boosting your political image. Uh, you know, that's clearly something with a huge, not only you know, personal and you know, individual and societal ramifications for Ukraine in particular, but also for, for many ordinary Russians who are being called to fight in a war they don't necessarily want to fight in. But also, they don't even um, have the they don't even have the luxury of it being called a war. That sort of the, the basic decency of admitting that they're at war. It's a special military operation. Well, that's the that's the euphemism. Yes. <laughs> um, now, so I'm not in any way suggesting here that, that you know the war in Ukraine is is to to keep Putin popular. Uh, you know, and clearly that it might well have the opposite effect. But what I'm trying to draw attention but it probably to, was wasn't yeah, it? I mean, well, what, yeah. what I'm trying to draw attention to basically is the fact that that what what you to come back to your original question, what's yeah. kept Putin popular and, and in power for so long and, and his approval rating so high for so long is this idea that the economy is doing okay, the, the country is reasonably stable uh, and, and Russia is 
throwing its weight around in the world again and, and is respected uh, so, or so not respected than at least seen as a, an actor yeah. that can cause other countries to react. Yeah, and, and deserving of respect. And it's it's this triptych of the economy, stability and security, for want of a better way of putting it, um, that he's basically managed quite well, looking at it purely from the point of view of his electoral longevity or his governmental. Electoral is probably a bit generous, uh, suggesting that there's a fair electoral system. But he's nonetheless uh, managed those spheres, those those areas quite well. And he's now very strongly committed in this security phase because, as you say, um, the economy is not doing so well and, in fact, doing worse as a result, no doubt, of um, of the military, uh, special military operation. And, and stability, therefore, is also... Uh, you know, uh, an, an, a more open question now. There is you know, strong divisions in Russian society. They're not necessarily always able to be expressed, but as we know, I mean, there's there's a, there's a lot of disquiet as well, and there's all kinds of other sort of problems that have arisen. You know, the rise of oligarchs and the Prigozhin thing that we mentioned at the start. I mean, this is a this is a pretty explosive manifestation of things being out of control. Um, the author Simon Sebag Montefiore. Uh, said the murder of Progrosian and others and the two months lag between his abortive coup and and his assassination was quite telling. Um, He says it revealed Putin's weakness and that Progrosian's rise and fall, quote, chronicles the depletion of autocratic prestige, state power and competent management and it further raises the threat of the disintegration of Russia itself. That sounds pretty pretty dire for for Russia and for, for Putin. Uh, do you think it's uh, it's a, an overstatement? I think we can we can divide that into three separate questions. Actually, there's a long term question, a short term question, and then there's the Prigozhin and Putin question. Right. Um, so the the long term picture is to say that one of the uh, well, maybe two two long term things to say here. Actually, one is if you look at recent Russian history, and this is perhaps an overgeneralization, but if you look at the last 150 years or so of Russian history. There's a there's a 35 36 year cycle basically. If you start with 1881 when the Tsar was assassinated, that led to political changes, um, led to you know, a, a sort of increase of, of autocracy, which eventually led uh, in in an indirect way to the revolution. 35 or 36 years later, 1917. You then had the revolution. You had a 10 year period of of you know, flux. Stalin came to power. You, 10 years of of Stalin, so to speak, at his peak. Then the the Second World War and 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 decline um, and his death in 1953, which if you do the maths is 36 years after 1917. Mm. Uh, then we had another period of of you know, flux and change, followed by a, a long period of stagnation under Brezhnev, and then the the eventual collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, which is uh, I think 38 years, isn't it after after 1953? Oh, we'll just per, put that down to inflation. Per, Berlin Wall fell 36 years after 1953, and anyway, we want to keep our 36 year cycle going. Um, <laughs> And if you do the maths, you'll get to 36 years on from 1989. That's that's sort of coming up fairly soon uh, in yeah. the 2020s. So uh, now that's not to say, coming back to the quotation you had earlier, you're talking about the disintegration of Russia. That that mm. um, implies some sort of physical or or you know, political or or or, or map based disintegration. What you could, though, I think, see is a major realignment of Russian politics in the next few years, um, and it's going to come naturally at some point because obviously you know the, the current political regime has been there for almost a quarter of a century. Yeah. But not only that, all the people around Putin have also been there for, uh, in many cases, a quarter of a century. 
to a large extent, they're, they're, they're sort of rubber stamp organisations. But if we pay attention to the, 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 the formal parliament and party system, all the party leaders there have been there for, you know, I think Zhiganov, the leader of the Communist Party, is in his 31st year now as party leader. Uh, he's almost 80. Um, Putin himself is 70. So there's going to be, in any event, over the next 10 years even, if, if everyone's blessed with good health, you know, some sort of generational shift in, in Russian politics. But in the, the other thing is, I think, is all these uh, streams of, of how the country's been run for the last 25 years are beginning to, to you know, come into a confluence. One of them is that, that, coming back to your question from, from a few minutes ago, one of the other reasons Putin's stayed in power for so long, aside from the fact he's genuinely, up until recently, been fairly popular, is, is uh, how he's ruled his elite. So within the elite, there's, there's several groups. There's the, the group that, possibly a diminishing group, but a group of technocrats who basically get on with the job of running the country. There's a group who are personally loyal to Putin, who, who in many cases worked with him in the 1990s in St. Petersburg. And there's what in Russian are called the Siloviki, uh, the, 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 the powerful guys, I guess, if you, if you translate, translate it word the for word. The powerful guys. Uh, po powerful. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. They, they come from what we're yeah, often called. That was your Scottish accent or my so, sorry, yeah. inability to understand. Uh, the, the powerful so. ministries, um, so the, the Defence Ministry and, and the, the, the FSB, the Secret Services and so forth. And basically, um, within the elite, the way Putin has, has, has run you know, the system for, for almost a quarter of a century now is, is to keep these groups in balance. Right. Um, you know, so none of them has become more powerful than the other, and and um, they've all answered to him in a sense. So, so there's been an element of, of sort of playing different groups off against each other to keep some balance. Now that comes back, I think, now to your question about Prigozhin. Mm. Uh, Prigozhin is essentially a product of, of Putin. He, he was, uh, I mean, we, a bit like Putin. We don't necessarily know that much about about their their past lives, but what we Think well, we, Prigozhin was a hot we, dog what, what seller think, and a what chef. We think, what we think we know about Prigozhin, at least, was that he was as a petty criminal in yeah. the the, um, the old days in St. Petersburg. He spent some time in jail. He, he, as you say, was a hot dog seller. He was spotted by Putin. Putin brought him in to do, in the first instance, catering and, and such like. And I read somewhere that Putin was a taxi driver himself at one point. I, even I think even after he'd been at the KGB, he 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 says like many people in Russia in the nineteen nineties, he he drove a taxi tough. to to get by. Um, yeah. Again, we don't necessarily know if every fact about Putin is, is, yes. is uh, bona fide and verified, but but I think he says that himself anyway. Um, going back to Prigozhin, Prigozhin's basically been been in a role of, of being useful to Putin in different enterprises. He's, he's done large-scale catering for the Kremlin. He set up these troll factories that, that um, comment in newspaper articles and, and put out disinformation. He he then got involved in, in the Wagner Group that, that you mentioned earlier, which is a private military a mercenary group, basically, mm. which which has been useful to the state insofar as it's allowed it to, have, at least until it was more or less formally acknowledged that it existed, plausible deniability that this was really Russia doing yeah. things. Yeah, and so they could interfere um, in all kinds of so, yeah, places exactly. around the world. Yeah. Um, but but over the last year and a half, so Wagner, Wagner you know, obviously was, has played a role in the, the war in Ukraine, uh, and a pretty bloody role at that. Yes. Um, and what during last year recruiting hardened criminals from Russian jails, as a little aside to that, one or two of the, the hardened criminals they survived um, and are now back out in society. So, so there's, I was reading in a newspaper last week, in fact, just about about the fact that you know, some of their victims are now, of course, worried about uh, them being back out in society. Yeah, but that, that's a, a little uh, side, side to, to, to what you asked about, which mm. is is the role of Prigozhin. Now, Prigozhin then increasingly over the last six to nine months has got into a, a sort of personnel fight with with two of the senior. You know, official ministers, uh, which is to say Sergei Shoigu, the defence minister, and General Gerasimov, who's, who's been in charge of the, the official war effort. Um, 
And a lot of the, the, the sort of fighting, in a sense, has been an interfactional fight between the, the defence ministry and, and the private military group of Wagners do, whether they want to give him ammunition, whether he wants to be subordinate to them and so forth. Now, what's significant, I think, about the Prigozhin uh, attempted coup, if indeed it was that, is, is that it's the first time that these elite arguments have broken out into a, a fairly obvious and open manifestation. There's been a lot of these elite fights within the elite mm. where heads are banged together behind closed doors and, and where... If you know someone who knows someone, they can tell you a bit about who said something to what. But you know, this was a reasonably overt challenge directly to the defence ministry. It wasn't necessarily directly aimed at Putin, but it was aimed over Putin's head, in a sense, at the defence ministry. Yeah. And and what that tells you is, is that the system isn't as controlled and he's not as in control of it as he once was. Uh, now, as to Prigozhin's ultimate fate, uh, I'm not an air traffic uh, accident uh, reporter. I, I, I wouldn't want to speculate as to why Prigozhin's plane came down, but, but but I think there are some suspicions and and some uh, some discussions. And it's I think very polite. Even the Kremlin has suggested there may have been foul play involved, um, although they didn't say whose. Um, but the the uh, the key point about this is that uh, if it's the obvious, uh, and uh, I, I again don't want to speculate here. Uh, another interesting thing about that is is that it suggests that the guarantees are not what they once were. So, so if you remember back in June. When Prigozhin stood down, he was given security guarantees by the president of Belarus um, and yeah. you know, indirectly by, by you know, President Putin. Uh, there may have been a, an accident in the plane, there may have been a mechanical failure or something, but um, uh, you know, unfortunately, Prigozhin's no longer around to, to tell us about it. And no, well, um, so we the, so we uh, believe the the um, if that is indeed the case, then then you know it suggests that, that he wasn't as safe as he was. Told he was going to be. Well, uh, if it was a coincidence, it's one of the great coincidences yeah. of history because there's been a quite a pattern of people who've uh, needed to be. Uh, it's been convenient for Putin and his his uh, his cohort to not have around who are not around anymore, including you know outspoken critics. And if they're not in jail, they're dead. Stand, standing near windows is also a bad <laughs> career move. Um, <laughs> Exactly. So, I again, mean, we shouldn't laugh about this. It's, it's, very, it's, very, it's not at all funny, actually. And, 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 um, let, let me just take a quick break and we'll come back in just a moment. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When the wind veered, the smoke was driven backwards, revealing a most amazing scene. Standing columns of fire. To Be Continued is a new podcast that explores the rich world of lost literary fiction from Australia's past. It helps you to understand the way in which knowledge is kind of not something that's out there waiting to be discovered, but it's something that you create. To Be Continued is brought to you by the Australian National University and is available now on your favourite podcast app. Welcome back. I'm talking with Professor Derek Hutchison from Malmo University. We're talking about Vladimir Putin and Russia and related issues. Uh, Derek, we were talking about the... Uh, you know the, the the perilous state for critics in Putin's Russia. You were about to make a point. Yeah. So just before the break, uh, we were we were talking slightly ironically about standing near windows and, and getting in planes and so on. But I think there's a very serious point to make here, not not just a, a, a facetious point. And that mm. is 
that you know, the, the security guarantees that Prigozhin was given clearly didn't keep him secure. And and in a system which relies upon uh, essentially trust between all these elites, this could be a very dangerous step for Putin insofar as it, it, it starts to bring into question that, that's whether a, these guarantees are, are, are worth what they once were. That's a really interesting point to make, actually, because the way I've seen it described by people who watch this or, you know, Russian reporters on, on the situation in Russia is that it was a dent to Putin's prestige, this whole event, and uh, he needed to... Um, give Putin or at least go along with the guarantee. Putin needed to give that guarantee or that veneer of a guarantee to Prigozhin because he needed to pacify Wagner first. He needed to make sure that he had Wagner under control or in a place where he could understand it um, before any sort of more decisive action was taken. And that Putin's assessment was, and this seems to me to make more sense. Putin's assessment was that his prestige was damaged more by allowing Prigozhin to have got away with what he did than by being seen to have gone back on his word in relation to Prigozhin's safety. That, that's, a, I think, certainly a very valid point of view. Um, the, the the initial thing happening in the first place clearly was, was, was in a bigger sense, a, a damaged issue for, for the prestige of the Kremlin and yeah. its ability to keep control of the country. Yeah. Moreover, the, 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 the sort of slightly erratic course that, that charted over those those uh, day and a half, that day and a half of, of uh, events was, was quite interesting. It began with um, Putin going on television in the morning saying these people are traitors and will be removed and mm. uh, it won't survive. And by the evening, Prigozhin sort of standing down saying terribly sorry, we made a bit of a mistake and, <laughs> and going off to, to, to Belarus. And, and clearly... In the course of the day, uh, you know, even the Russian public must have noticed some sort of change of tone uh, mm. between between the morning and the evening. Prigozhin then was on the sidelines, even as recently as a couple of weeks ago at the Russia Africa summit, and, and recently yeah, that's publicly right, so. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so clearly the the um, the, the now again, how, how much people watch this, and how, how much uh, you know people watching the Russian state television news are, are are taking note of this in the same way that we are when we're putting all the different bits of the jigsaw together yeah. differently. Is a different question, but but clearly still having Prigozhin there indicated uh, some form of, of weakness. Yeah, that's right. Because I mean, the Wagner Group is not the only mercenary army that exists for a start, uh, and there are other powerful interests, uh, powerful oligarchs, um, and presumably Putin took the view that he looked weaker if he allowed this to continue than if he took action about it. That 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 uh, you know he could he could weather the uh, the opprobrium of having acted brutally and extrajudicially and so forth, he couldn't weather uh, for any length of time the suspicion amongst those competing for power that he was no longer in charge. Well, we, we can we can speculate here and we're, we're making the assumption here that, that Putin was the one who, <laughs> who sent out the order. Um, if he didn't, then, then it certainly, of course, removes someone from the scene that, that potentially was embarrassing. But uh, maybe we just take a step back from this for a minute and say just for a moment we're, we're talking here about the elected president of the largest country in the world. And we're talking here uh, as though he's basically some sort of mafia boss who, who just takes out opponents in planes. Now, again, I don't want to speculate one way or the other. There's, there's a, a, a set of circumstances that, that, that suggest that that's not an implausible scenario. But the very fact that we're even considering that it is a scenario, I think, indicates how much Russian politics has changed over the last few years. Uh, I mean, up until three or four years ago, I was traveling very regularly to Russia. I was meeting regional politicians, national politicians, local politicians. 
Um, you know, and essentially what we we're talking about was was everyday policy issues. We were talking um, in my most recent research project about city planning issues and and improving urban amenities, local local decision making, and such like. In, in previous years, I've been interviewing people from political parties and, and elected deputies in in local and regional and even the national parliament. Um, and obviously, there's been a, a, a qualitative shift over over the years in, in Russia in terms of how elections are organised and, and how restrictive. The, the electoral rights are and so on, uh, on on people's right to stand if they hold dual nationality and so on. But the very fact we're now in 2023 talking about someone who's been elected four times in elections that uh, the first time around, at least in 2000, were described as a step in the road to democracy mm. indicates, I think, how far the Russian uh, political system has shifted, uh, particularly in the last three or four years, in fact. Uh, and I think we've also been talking about Russian as an autocracy and an authoritarian system for many years. That may well be the case and, and is heading towards being the case now. But I think, again, there's been a qualitative shift compared to maybe five years ago. You know, people five years ago, when you went to Russia, you, you sit in a cafe and talk about politics. People didn't always do it, but but there wasn't any sort of sense, unless you were a very overt critic of the regime, which which some people were, of course, and very often got arrested you know, in, in protests and so on. But um, particularly in the last year and a half, uh, you know, there are so many laws have been changed to, to outlaw criticism of the war, for example, to... Question Russia's borders is, is now a crime. Now, Russia's borders are themselves uh, in dispute, uh, not least because the president claims them to be in a different place from where they actually are. Um, there, there's uh, an increasing number of, of, of people, ordinary people, in a sense, have fled Russia to, to um, yeah. you know, avoid the danger of being sent to, to the front and or who are afraid that they're going to be arrested and, and thrown in jail. And there's been some very high-profile jailings of, of critics. Now, there's always been a sort of background level that if you're a street protester and, and you, you you could become overly critical, you, you might spend a night in jail and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, there are a few arrests at every demonstration to put in courage les autres, as they in France, but not the degree of, of um, blacklisting and, and um, you know, arrest that's going on now. There's there's also... Yeah, which makes it, the de this is the definition of an authoritarian state now. I mean, I don't think there's any debate about that now, surely. Yeah, but that's, that's my point, actually, is to say that... that um, the fact we're now talking about, you know, did he take him out by shooting down his plane, you know, as the president of a country, or, uh, you know, has someone be jailed for twenty years or twenty five years, or did they get off lightly? But that's these, not, are, these are these are not things that twenty years ago, um, you know, you no. would consider to be the affairs of a normal democratic state. No, no, absolutely. Yeah. But then it's no leap from that in a moral sense, uh, uh, you know, from that to uh, what's going on in Ukraine itself. I mean, the the invasion of Ukraine is. Uh, an illegal act, and it's an immoral act, and it's playing out in the um, annihilation of citizens, civilians, uh, at a horrendous rate. I mean, half a million of them or more. Um, it is it, so. I don't see why anyone would be surprised that he would decide that uh, um, you know he's going to take out someone who's. I mean, you know, he's on the record as saying there's one thing he will never forgive, and that is betrayal. And he would have seen Prigozhin's act yeah, as exactly. betrayal. And he would have known that even if he didn't see it as betrayal, even if he saw Prigozhin as having a, a beef with the defence minister, it still showed him in a weak light, in a, in a, you know, showed him publicly to not be in control. And he couldn't allow it. I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, it adds up. Yeah, I, know, yeah. I know what you're saying. I mean, yeah. there was no actual evidentiary line there. I appreciate that. There won't be probably. Yeah, I think I think what I'm actually trying to say is isn't necessarily who, who did it or who didn't do it. What, yeah. what I'm actually trying to say is that that, that this this 
system has now degenerated to the point where we're actively considering the possibility that it did. You know, yeah, yeah. and and um, you know, next year uh, in, in March, if if it goes ahead, there will be a presidential election, which in all likelihood, if he stands, which he probably will. Mm. You know, Vladimir Putin will win with presumably and, and expectedly a fairly high percentage of the vote. But that election isn't going to be the same as an election back in 2000 or, or yeah. even 2004 yeah. when he had stood for his first or second term where, where um, you know, he, he genuinely was was sort of popular and, and would have, even without you know strong media resources and so on, probably have, have been popular enough to, to win it yeah. outright. Yeah. Let's talk about the... Um the war itself, or not so much the details of the mm. war, but the, the, the sort of fact of it in a political sense, because this goes to that security frame to a degree. I mean, uh, he 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 argues to the Russian people that it's a special military operation, uh, that it's to protect Russia. That the I mean, the narrative line inside Russia is that this is as a result of Western provocation, the encroachment of NATO to Russia's very border, uh, the, the 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 sort of enticing of Ukraine to become. You know, a puppet of the of the West and so forth. Um, that's a very convenient thing for a, a strong man who has uh, lost control of those other aspects of of uh, that that have been his strengths that we've talked about earlier. You know, the economy and stability and the and and the projection of things being better. The sort of realistic hope that Russians might have of you know uh, sunlit uplands just around the corner. Exactly. No, I think. Before we start any of this discussion, I think we should maybe very clearly state, I think everyone knows this, but just for for the avoidance of, of any doubt, Russia invaded Ukraine, not the other way around. Um, what did I say? Uh, no, yes, you, you did say that. I'm just I'm just stating re, re, right. restating it before before I go into you know see what, what led up to this. Mm. Um Russia invaded Ukraine, not the other way around. I think there's a, a very widely accepted international norm that you don't invade the next door country, try and take its capital um in you know democratic countries and that consequently what we're talking about here is an illegal invasion. Yeah. So, yeah. so I just want to be completely clear about that before I continue. I want to go back then to the, the second question you said, which is the, the idea that Russia claims it was provoked. Now, increasingly, of course, over the years, NATO has expanded to to countries which do order Russian, in fact, even more so now since the, the yeah. war that, that Finland is added to that collection of countries that, that they neighbour Russia that are members of NATO, as well as the Baltic states uh, as yeah. well, of course. But um, I think it's very indicative to look back at the 1990s because um, if you read the autobiography of Andrei Kozirev, who was the foreign minister in the, the Yeltsin years, or the, the early Yeltsin years at least, it's very striking to read it now. He, he, he actually only published it two or three years ago. Uh, he lives in America now and uh, published an autobiography with obviously 20 years hindsight and knowing what had become of Russia. But it's quite striking to read now that that back in the 1990s, Yeltsin, um, to some extent, but particularly Kozirev, who was his foreign minister, believed that by being partners with the West, this would strengthen Russia's security. Um, now, there are a number of stories already in the 90s, and, and you know, Kozirev explains his frustration very often at going to a discussion with NATO, thinking he'd left with some sort of deal to involve Russia in the discussion, and then finding that that you know one step forward had been taken with, with NATO enlargement or, or steps towards it at least um, without your consultation. But but essentially what, what Russia was driving towards in the 1990s was the idea that if it was a partner with NATO or at least uh, you know had, had collaboration and, and communication with NATO, then everybody was, was stronger as a result of that. Um, Putin apparently and allegedly, uh, according to, to George Robertson, who was the, um, or Lord Robertson as he now is, who, who was the, the Secretary General of NATO in the early 2000s, he claims that the Putin actually asked him at one point, you know, 
when are you going to invite us to join NATO? And he pointed out that Russia had to apply rather than being invited. But in any event, if this was anything other than a jocular comment, standing, waiting for a photograph at a summit, <laughs> um, you know, this, this implied that, that Putin didn't necessarily see NATO as being antithetical at that point. It's yeah, Russia's interest. Yeah. I've read this um, too. Now, you know, over the years, particularly since about 2007 or so, it's built up. Putin made a speech in, in Munich in 2007 where he started to be critical of, of the, the sort of unipolar world of of you know, American-dominated NATO and so yeah. on. If you um, heard his speech in 2014 when... when um, the annex Crimea. The gist of his speech was, uh, you know, we're pretending this is uh, legal, but even if you think it isn't, then it doesn't matter because the West doesn't follow international law either. Um, and this was his, his essential pitch. Uh, and increasingly over the years, his pitch has been the West doesn't follow international law. You know, the, the West is out to get us. Therefore, we're perfectly justified in defending ourselves. And, and in the intervening time, also in 2008, I think George W. Bush made the observation that it was only a matter of time before Ukraine became a member of NATO. So there, there was this the sort Bucharest of... memorandum, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, there was yeah. this sort of um, uh, narrative that was building up in Russia that, that Russia was being contained, that it was being encroached upon on its periphery. Yeah, so there's that, that's been increasingly the, the narrative uh, again. Um, now, the other thing I'd say is, is that, uh, you know, Colleagues of mine, including you know, what I'm working with here, the, the ANU, have been running surveys in, in Russia for, for many years. And one of the questions uh, that we've, we've asked in these surveys has been, which of the following countries do you see as enemies or how friendly do you think this country is compared to that country and so forth? Now, as recently as, as the first week of 2014 or the first month of 2014, which, which was um, fieldwork on a survey that was done during the Sochi Olympics, which was a week and a half before the... The, uh, the the whole situation in, in in Crimea started and and a month and a half before the the annexation, Ukraine wasn't seen by by the Russian public at least according to these surveys as being a major threat. And again, when you asked earlier about what was it kept Putin popular, there was no connection at all between seeing Ukraine as a threat and and Putin's popularity back in twenty fourteen. So the the, the obviously um, what what the the twenty fourteen Maidan. Uh, demonstrations were about was about was about a trade deal between the EU and, and Ukraine and, and the cancellation of it and, and pressure coming from Russia to cancel it. But amongst the Russian public, again, uh, you know, many, many people in Russia have got Ukrainian family or were themselves born in, in Ukraine or or are married to people in Ukraine mm -hmm. and so on. The average Russian, I think, until the last 10 years at least, wouldn't necessarily have seen Ukraine as, as an enemy in, in any sense. And what, what's happened over the last 10 years has been this conflation of two or three different things. The building up of Ukraine, to some extent building on old stereotypes of each other yeah. as, as an enemy. The, the second aspect being that Ukraine had a very distant uh, prospect of being a member of NATO. NATO only accepts stable members. And of course, as long as Russia is keeping it in, unstable by occupying Ukraine and prior to that, having having you know, annexed Crimea, that of course also brought into question Ukrainian yeah. uh, NATO membership, but thirdly, and there then, was also an assessment from realists that um, that the West wouldn't go as far as officially making Ukraine a member of NATO because of the perception that it created in Moscow that Moscow was being encroached upon, and therefore there was a you know sphere of influence argument for allowing for for just simply you know, talking nice about Ukraine, but not actually ever going as far as making it a formal member. Yeah. Now, what I to say is the last year and a half since the war started, uh, well, since the war, the war started in 2014, but since, since the, the invasion of the east of Ukraine and, yeah. and, and the attempt to capture Kiev, 
um, there's been an increasing shift in the narrative. So if you listen to, to Russian news, it's, it, we can't do it very much in, in Europe because it's, it's blocked by the EU. But, mm. but I've been listening uh, here you know, while I've been in Australia to the, the Russian news. And any of your listeners who speak Russian can, can do so. Um, you'll hear the narrative has shifted quite considerably. So it started off as being uh, a narrative about fighting neo-Nazis in, in Ukraine. It then shifted into a discussion about whether Ukraine had the right to exist as an independent state and so on, which clearly is, is, is mm. nonsense, but, but you know, it's, it's part of the narrative. But shifting over time has been a conflation of Ukraine with NATO uh, and the West. So obviously Ukraine is uh, receiving you know, financial and, and military support from the West. Um, and, and that is being switched around in the Russian narrative to indicate that Russia is under attack. So um, ironically, in fact, when, when politicians in uh, the West are, are, are talking tough, in a sense, to, to, to show resolve, to, to demonstrate to Russia that, that the West is united and, and, and will back Ukraine, that's not being ignored in the Russian media. It's being switched around and, and exploited. Uh, Used sort of proof of selective, their argument. Selectively quoted to say, look, we told you they were against us. Here's the proof you know, that NATO's out to get us, the West is out to get us, and, and you know, Russia needs to defend itself. Um, again, you know, I'm, I'm explaining what the narrative is. I'm not necessarily condoning no, it. That. But uh, yeah. to, to, to explain that, that over the 30 years since the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, or more than 30 years now, the, the narrative of NATO uh, and also the, the intended and planned and designed for relationship with NATO has changed uh, and shifted back in a sense to a, a, a confrontational rather than a cooperative arrangement. Yeah. Uh, final question, final sort of topic. Um, there's, a, there's an ongoing rise of the right in Europe, in democratic Europe as well. We see this in Finland, which we've just been discussing, in Sweden, in France, you know, Marine Le Pen's very close to incised to uh, Macron's um, political power. We know that uh, um, Giorgia Maloney in uh, Italy, her uh, what's it called, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, uh, the Brothers of Italy, uh, is in, in charge there. Uh, so, the, you know, the, the right's been on the rise in Greece and Spain, lots of countries. There are European elections next year. There's a real sense of a shift going on. A lot of this is sort of reaction against migration, particularly refugees, and particularly from Syria, but also from, from North Africa. I'm just wondering, a number of these right-wing parties, particularly the AFD in Germany, the alternative for Deutschland, uh, extreme right-wing party, the neo-Nazi sort of uh, background, um, they have a you know, major beef about uh, immigration and so forth. A lot of these right-wing parties also have some sympathy for Russia, some sympathy for, for Russia's position in this and some affection for Putin. Is, as someone who lives in Europe and, and, and is watching this and understands Russia very intimately, as we've just been discussing, do you think that's going to have any effect, given that this war is dragging on, uh, in terms of prolonging it, uh, prolonging Russian resolve, uh, perhaps even changing the balance of support for Russia or Ukraine over time? I think we you can see the rise of right-wing parties as part of a bigger phenomenon. So it's not something that's happened in the last two or three years, and it's not something that's unique to Europe. It's the same phenomenon that's brought Trump to mm -hmm. prominence in America. It's the same phenomenon, uh, to some extent, that, that's brought Brexit. And it's 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 the rise of a combination of populism and uh, you know, it's two different strands actually. One is sort of populism in a broad sense and anti-establishment ideas. Mm. The other is, um, as you mentioned, immigration as a, as a trigger point um, or at least as a point which people mobilise around. 
I think the the thing about the far right. So again, I'm sure most of you most of you listeners know this, but but uh, you know many countries in in Europe now have a, a sizable minority of, of far right parties in their parliaments, including the the European Parliament. Mm. In some countries, you know, such as Sweden, for instance, and 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 uh, a few years ago, Denmark, they're, they're getting fifteen twenty percent of the votes. It's a fairly sizable proportion, not not just a small fringe movement. What they what they basically have in common is is a, a number of different things. One is they focus a lot on national identity. And and have a sort of xenophobic view of, of foreigners. The second is they look for culprits, and the culprit is the establishment or liberal ideas or yeah. or um, you know the the the, the left wing and so on. And the third thing is the solution, and the solution in their case is always to to have fewer foreigners and to yeah. um, you know to leave the EU in the case of Brexit and so on. In the case of Trump, it's to build a wall and such like. There's always, in other words. Something that's wrong, uh, someone that's to blame, and and someone something yeah. that can be done about yeah, it. Yeah. Um, Something now, simple that can be done usually. If complex problems pr- provided simple answers. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. No, I think the the what they're having an effect in is, is again, it's not it's not a new phenomenon. It's not something that's going has changed from from one day to the next. But the number of things which which lie behind it, and one of them has nothing to do with Russia, which is the the or Russia no more than any other country, which is the the financial crash back of two thousand and eight and the recession that followed, yeah. which which wasn't just something that happened in two thousand and eight. It took several years for that recovery to come, combined with um, something I think you discussed a few weeks ago in your podcast, the, the idea of the, the political cartel, that they, 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 they position themselves outside, in many cases they are establishment people, but they, they depict themselves as being outside the establishment yeah. and, and attacking the cartel of, of establishment parties uh, within it. Um, and the third thing then uh, is that they, they sort of move other parties onto their agenda. So for instance, yeah. Uh, there are social democratic parties in Europe now, which are very strong anti-immigration yeah. policies that they didn't have ten years ago because they're they're sort of moving their pitch on to to compete with with those of the far right. And we can even see that um, in U.S. politics, you know, with the um, uh, Biden's uh, what is the Anti-Inflation Act? I can't remember the exact name of it, but you know, a kind of a, a strong protectionist um, or, or nationalist t- sort of flavor of uh, some of the uh, legislation, some of the policy that's being pursued. So yeah. it, the whole center gets pulled across. Yeah, so they're having that effect. They're having a, a sort of blackmail effect in some cases in that there are some countries uh, in which parties until recently have refused to, to, to work with them. In the case of Germany, for instance, and, until very, very recently, the, the, the other parties have maneuvered around the, the, the AFD, uh, the Alliance for uh, the, the um, Alternative for Deutschland. Mm. In Sweden, until recently, again the the, the other parties manoeuvred around the Sweden Democrats uh, yeah. uh, rather than than involving them. No, no, that's not the case. They're, they're now propping up the, the Swedish government, not part of it, but reliant on their votes. Now, coming back to your question about Russia, uh, in many cases, what what these populist right wing parties in Europe have connected to or or seen in Russia is, is the 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 war on liberalism um, in particular. So they 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 see certain strains of conservatism and, and anti liberal ideas that that they are sympathetic to, um, and they, they have until at least the, the war started in Ukraine, often spoken fairly positively about uh, you know Putin in, in that light. I think for the, in the main they're, they're not doing it now. Uh, you know, even people like Marine Le Pen and so on have have, have not publicly you know backed back the Russian side in, mm. in the war. But but clearly these these sort of anti-liberal tendencies are, are the ones which which are the ones which uh, you know the, the, the populist parties latched onto in, in Russia. What I think is going to have a, a, a bigger impact, uh, actually, than anything that happens in, in any individual European country is what happens in the United States next year in the presidential election. Um, you know, to, Europe obviously is, is, is helping Ukraine and is geographically 
you know, Ukraine is in Europe and therefore yeah. uh, it borders the EU and it's it's in the centre of, of Europe as a continent. But uh, it's, it's the backing of the United States, clearly, which which will be, I think, most decisive in terms of, you know, how much agency yeah. uh, Ukraine, independent of itself, has. The other thing I should say here, though, is that we're, we're also denying the Ukrainians agency in this. We're talking about a big... A big picture of of you know, the West versus Russia, in some sense, caught in the middle of this is, is the country where the war is actually happening, which is Ukraine. Well, and, yeah, I'd, I'd probably uh, say we're not denying them agency. Uh, I mean, yeah. their agency has been absolutely critical throughout this. I mean, yeah. everyone expected uh, when when it all started, everyone expected Ukraine to fall quite quickly. Just about everyone. Uh, it seemed to be very asymmetric, and it has been a revelation the extent to which Ukraine has not only resisted but fought back and and pushed the Russians back. Having said that, it's, there's no denying that it's done so with vast, uh, um, you know, assistance from the West uh, in terms of uh, military supplies, uh, materiel, and so forth, and um, and that's crucial yep. to its to so, its so, survival. You know, going back to that point, I think that's that's the thing. I mean, we obviously in our most optimistic hopes hope that there won't still be a war going on by the time of the presidential election next year. But if it continues the way it has done over the last year and a half, it's not impossible that there will be. And I think. The, the position of the United States after next year's presidential election will be one of the crucial factors that and, determines. And Putin's long had this sort of view that he would, um, you know, once it was clear that it wasn't all going to be over quite quickly, his his view seemed to shift to, you know, I'm going to outlast the West. Western resolve will eventually crack. So far it hasn't, but um, I guess that's where I was going with the question. Look, we're... Um, We've, you know, right out of time now. We've been having a, a good conversation. We've probably gone a bit longer than I in, intended, but I hope that uh, you've enjoyed it. I know I very certainly much, have yes. and learned a great deal. So, uh, Derek, Professor Derek Hutchison from Malmo University, thanks very much for being on Democracy Sausage. Great having you in the country, and uh, great to be able to uh, plumb your expertise uh, today and on on this on these crucial topics. Well, thank you. I hope it's not my last period of time spent in Australia. Well, indeed, and perhaps we'll talk to you again, even uh, remotely, as we do occasionally with our international guests. So um, look forward to talking to you again. That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Thanks for being with us. You can contact us on email. That's democracy sausage or one word, at anu.edu.au. Uh, you can also subscribe to the podcast, which is a really good way of doing it because you then um, you know have it drop into your inbox I'm told, uh, and um, make sure you don't miss an episode. And uh, we look forward to um, coming back to you next week with subjects yet to be determined. Look forward to that. Until then, bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.